59 of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday. That is interview day. And I am really excited about today's guest, Bruce Ford. Um, I think I've chatted with him over the years now and again by email, but I got to meet him for the first time this year uh, down at the Greater Reset in Bastrop, Texas. And he had a booth set up and I walked by it and immediately caught my attention and went over and had one of many really great conversations with Bruce. Uh, he's got a really innovative approach to what he's doing with his business. We'll be talking about that today. He's helping people set up with bees and wildlife management programs. And why? To stick it to the man, that's why. And you know I'm all about that. So in a lot of places, even with a fairly small property, like in Texas, it's five acres, just bees or a wildlife management program can get you into agriculturally tax exemption status. We're talking tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars across a lifetime of money you don't pay the state, plus all the other great things that come with it. We're going to talk about greenhouse growing, uh, planting uh, stuff for your bees. We're going to talk about a ton of stuff today, basically the backyard revolution, things you can do in your life that are real and really matter. And we'll have Bruce on in just a moment. Before we do that, let me go ahead and remind you about our two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor today, number one today, is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the go-to place to get pastured beef, pastured, uh, I'm sorry, grass-fed beef, pastured poultry, and pastured pork, along with great seafood options. If you're watching the video, you can see right there. Doesn't that all look fantastic? You could have a box of that shipped to your front door once a month or every other month. It's up to you. Big box, small box, lots of great add-ons that you can have. I usually have quite a few add-ons every month myself. You can set up recurring add-ons, occasionally have some really great deals like I have one deal. I paid 100 bucks and I get flank steak for life. In every box, I get an extra flank steak. How awesome is that? Check them out today, butcherbox.com. And if you are an MSB member and you don't use your discount code, you hate money because it'll save you 10 bucks a month. And on a year, that's $120 a year every year just by being an MSB member. So they're great supporters. Next up today, JM Bullion. Yes, I know I'm big on Bitcoin. Somebody said yesterday on Twitter, remember when you were all into silver and now you're all into Bitcoin? I don't know who this guy is. It doesn't really matter. You guys know me. I believe in diversified investments, real estate. Yes. Cash. Yes. Securities. Yes. Bitcoin. Yes. Silver and gold. Yes. But you know what? I'm going to stack silver. I only go to one place. The place that sponsored my show for over a decade now. The place that gives my members a discount on silver and gold. Nobody does that, but they do. The place that gives better pricing than Monix, Atmix, and Lear Capital. And the place where everything ships free. I don't know why you'd buy anywhere else. Check out all of the cool options for stacking silver they have at JM Bullion. If you have werewolves in your life, they even have silver bullets. Imagine that. Those ones don't actually work. They don't be using them on no werewolves. With that, I'm really excited to introduce now Bruce Ford. Bruce, welcome to the Survival Podcast. This, this is something that probably should have happened a long time ago, but somebody doesn't like to fill out forms. <laughs> hey Jack Man, let, let's start off with can you tell people just a little bit about yourself the Bruce Ford 
uh, bio in in the elevator condensed speech. Like, who is Bruce Ford and what is he all about? Well, good to see you again, Jack. Um, I, I spent my first part of my life as a, a supply chain sourcing engineer with uh, Dresser Industries. And, uh, you know, they laid me off in 2017 in, in, after a really good 34-year run, and I didn't want to slow down, so uh, I went full-time beekeeping. And I look back now, and I should have quit 20 years ago. I'm having so much fun. <laughs> but it's not just it starts with beekeeping, but every time I talk to people, they want to know about gardening. They want to know about rainwater catchment, uh, ag exemptions. And these are things I've been doing most of my life, so I just try to keep them, keep them informed. And it's gotcha. a good life. Gotcha. And you went from supply chain engineering – um, in oil and gas to mentoring individuals about homesteading skill sets. What, is, what does that transition actually look like? Uh, you know, it really just started trying to help people uh, do better in manufacturing when I was doing my first thir uh, 34 years. And then uh, I obviously was good at it because once I got out of uh, oil and gas, then I started mentoring people on homesteading, you know, that is one of these areas that has really taken off for, you know, maybe a decade now. People want their food security and they want to get away from working for the man. So I help them figure it out. It's that simple. And I've done it. Uh, you know, I figured it out and I just uh, connect the dots and let everybody else know how to do it. Yeah, I, and I really, in, really enjoyed talking to you about some of the ways that you're doing that. Let's talk a little bit about your small business. So you consult with new landowners, and it's one thing to consult with them on how to do a thing so that they get the result of it, but it, it's it's a much more integrated approach to that. So if you can consult with somebody on how to do bees, you want to make sure they keep the bees alive, they get honey, they get wax, they take care of the bees and what have you. But you're doing this a little bit differently. The value proposition is less, hey, you have bees, and more, you don't have to pay the government as much money anymore. Or let's set up a wildlife management plan for you, because a lot of people are not aware that they can get exemption status from that type of approach as well. So right. how, how exactly does that all work out? Well, a lot of people are still buying land in Central Texas. I mean, it's off the charts. And usually they buy 5 to 20 acres, and they want to get out of the urban area. They want their food security. They want to have a better control over their their children's homeschooling and stuff. So the first thing I do is come in and help them with the ag exemption deal. Uh, a lot of people, they, they don't want to have cattle. They don't want to have hay, but they get an ag exemption from the previous owner when they buy property. And if they want to maintain that low property tax – which many times that's like less than $50 on 15 acres a year, then we just put honeybees on their property. Now that gets them started. They, they enjoy, a lot of them enjoy taking care of honeybees. And so I say, well, why don't you get more beehives? Why don't you turn it into a side hustle? The next thing you know, and I'll tell you right now, beekeeping is very addictive. They get involved at any level they want and they enjoy the honey, and they find a lot of people around them need ag exemptions. So I teach them how to help those people set up honeybee apiaries so they can get their property taxes low. And it, it just it just snowballs. And you mentioned that you have some people that they're all about keeping the bees, but they don't want to take care of the bees. Mm -hmm. that, that would be me. 
And so you've helped some people get involved with that as well. Where like I have a pool, a pool man that comes and takes care of my pool. And I, and I was on my B mentor up here for years. I, I want a B man, but you that's, actually have some exactly of that going right. on down there, don't you? Because I, I, I like bees and I don't mind having to work with them here and there, but I don't enjoy it the way that you and, and many other people do. And that means that I got rid of my bees because I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't probably <laughs> taking care of them. But if I had a bee man that would come once a month or twice a month or whatever and do my work for me, I would totally pay that dude. And so that the pool man, the bee man, it's the same philosophy. I'll go to the uh, local bee clubs around central Texas and I'll look for beekeepers that have made that next jump that are starting to look for a side hustle and give them contacts, teach them how to go maintain the bee yard for the client, for the, for the landowner. And honestly, my, my policy is always, you charge them a nominal fee, $50 a month for the gas and, and, and time. But you go in there and you teach them how to be beekeepers and they may start going that direction and expanding out their side hustle or just make sure that they do the right thing and they grow their honeybees, not lose them. And mm. it's really a basic process. It's very easy to raise honeybees. You just, you just need a little knowledge base. That's all. Yeah, there's definitely like room in that for multiple levels of beekeeping care, I guess, from your bee man. Sure. So like, you know, you could have a pool person that comes once a month to do the deep cleaning, but you check your own chemicals, right? So you could have a bee man that maybe comes once a month or every other month and does a more thorough inspection, make sure there's nothing wrong, you know, things like that. And you can do, you know, you feed your own bees and, and whatever. So like, I guess well, honestly, is, I, I teach them how to feed their own bees, but you know, we'll inspect, we'll look at the frames. We call read the frames and see what yep. the condition of the bees are. Look for the queen. That's always a lot of fun. Go ahead and treat for varroa mite disease. That's a big deal here in, in Texas. And and sometimes you want to make sure, I, I like to sprinkle a little bit of a tetramycin in there too, because nobody wants foul brood, which is very rare in the beekeeping world around here. But why worry about it when you can sprinkle a little bit of uh, tetramycin or uh, uh, add a little bit of uh, uh, just just anything that will keep the bees healthy. Now, always remember, we use anything that's a chemical that does not affect the honey and does not get impregnated in the wax. That's the right. trick. But I like to tell people, hey, look, get your honey. And they say, well, I want all my honey. I said, well, go get it. And they said, well, I don't know how. I said, okay, I'll come help you get the honey, and I'll split it with you on the halves. Yeah. And once they try that honey, uh, they start seeing an improvement in their health. Their, uh, and I'm not a doctor. I'm going to say that right now. But I have a lot of friends. They're not taking their allergy shots anymore. And for whatever that's worth, they, they, they get their honey from their backyard where the pollen that's been bothering them is in their backyard. The next thing you know, they're putting in more beehives and getting more honey. And at that point, they're interested in setting up a side hustle. So we talk about something else like raising plants for vegetables. Honestly, anybody that gets a piece of property out in the country, the first thing they should do is put in a greenhouse. I teach them how to just go over to Home Depot or Lowell's and buy the equipment 
set up a 13 by 20 foot greenhouse with roll up sides. That's important in Texas. Yeah, it is. And, And you set that up. And here's the deal. People do not have enough time to take a little plastic six pack and put some dirt in it and put some seeds and water it. So they have some vegetable plants to put in their garden. But they'll go down every Saturday and they'll spend $5 for a six pack of tomato plants all day long. In a 13 by 20 uh, greenhouse, you can put 500 of those plastic six packs in there, put your own dirt, your own seeds, water them. And within four weeks, you can have plants, vegetable plants in season, take them down to the farmer's market or the town square and sell them for $5 a piece all day long. And you can keep doing that every week with just a little greenhouse. Now, that, that's, that's the last greenhouse I put in. Uh, that's a little bit bigger. It's, mm. it's like a, a lot bigger, 20 by 30, I think, or 20 by 40. I forget. Uh, I've actually turned that into a workshop. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, but I have another one just, just that size that all I do is plant seeds, do cuttings, uh, anything that is something that people like to have either in their garden or in their in on their on their property elderberries blackberries vegetable plants medicinal plants native flowering plants any of those people love those things so you know get a greenhouse up grow some plants take them down to the farmer's market and anything you don't sell put it in your own garden food security jack food security (laughs) yeah it's it's amazing to me that there's such a hot market for plants and starts and stuff. Um, I'll sell, you know, 50, bucks worth of sweet potato slips every year. Just, and I don't do more than that because I'm not in that. I make more money podcasting than making sweet potato slips. But just by throwing some in the air stacks in my ponds, you know, I can sell them for 10 for 10 bucks and uh, just on next door. And I, I probably could sell, you know, a couple thousand bucks a year if I tried and uh, I'll, I'll give you one thing if you're not doing that and you don't care about trying to make more money. But when you when you're like, I'm broke and you have these opportunities everywhere around you, I mean, maybe you should consider capitalizing on it. <laughs> I, you know, I, I tell people just follow your dream, you know, whatever you enjoy doing passion on the farm, just follow it and the money will come to you later. It, it just follow your passion. Uh, there's a Jones Family Farm. You can get sweet potatoes from them. You can get organic sweet potato slips. Usually it's about 60 bucks a box for a 1,000 sweet potato slips, and they ship them overnight. There's more than a 1,000 sweet potato slips in there, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> for 60 bucks. And, I mean, I'll take those down to the farmer's market and, and, and literally, you know, give them away or sell them, you know, 20 for a dollar, you know, 20 for five, whatever you think it'll bear. And yeah. let people grow their own sweet potatoes. <laughs> you know, that's the thing, too. Like, if you don't want to be a producer, you can be a flipper. Right? Exactly. That, that's the other side of it. Like, John Willis at SOE Tactical Gear, whose shirt I'm wearing today, um, one of the things he'll do, they'll buy, like, a buttload of little baby snakes. And then they'll sell them because they can buy a ton of them in one go. And then, like, so you could, it could be done literally with anything because there's people that deal in mass and they don't want – to individually deal with customers, and those are your wholesalers, whether they call themselves that or not. And then you've got retailers, and that's more of you're talking about like kind of the retail space of taking that large order 
and parting it out. I'll tell you, you'll love this about John, right? So his number one profitable item. So he makes all these like T-shirts and stuff, but all the high-end tactical gear and everything. His number one profitable item is gummy bears. <laughs> they sell a one-pound bag of these gummy bears as an add-on item. And like every single thing people buy on their site, do you want a bag of the best gummy bears on the planet? And I don't know who makes them, but they pretty much are the best gummy bears on the planet. You may have had them because you live in Texas. And the ones they sell at that check shop on 35 are the same ones. Because the pink ones taste like grapefruit. And I broke down my last trip down there, and I, I bought a bag of them on the way home. And I left a trail of pink grapefruit gummy bears all the way up by 35 because they, they shouldn't exist. They're not fit to exist. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, you're right, though. We can, we can flip. We can produce. There's lots of things. Before we keep moving in that direction, though, one of the things I was not aware of, I knew about the bee thing, and it makes perfect sense that a person would seek an ag exemption with bees because they're probably the livestock that you can – deal with the least and qualify. If I have right. chickens, right, you know, that's iffy. And then if I have cattle, there's a lot of work that goes into that, a lot of infrastructure. Bees, I got a hive. I got a bee, man. Do all the paperwork right. I'm in pretty good shape. But I didn't know that you could use a wildlife management plan. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that that's yeah. I like to do things that either get me grants or save money from the government that I would do anyway. And I like to eat deer. So a wildlife <laughs> management plan, I like to eat ducks, including wild ones, and wild geese. I like to eat squirrels. I like to eat rabbits. So wildlife management, I'm all in. How does that work out, and what are, like, land size requirements and stuff like that to use that approach? Well, I'll tell you, anybody that wants to war learn how to write and develop a wildlife management plan for their property, just go to the Texas Parks and Wildlife website, and do a deep dive for a couple of weeks. It, all the information is there, all the details, what to do, how to set up the reports, everything. Now, I, I, I honestly, when people come to me and say, well, I got 500 acres, write me a wildlife management plan. And, and I'll, I'll charge them a nice, nice fee. Okay. But I always tell them up front, you know what? You can do this yourself. If you got two weeks, go deep dive on the Texas Parks and Wildlife website and they always say, no, nah, I don't have time. Here's the money. Go do it for me. So That's there's a market. <laughs> there's a market. Be honest with them. They're, they're, they're busy. They're going to say, go do it for me and show me how. And I, I, would, I would have to believe that that's like an 80% boilerplate thing once you've done one or two of them. That's correct. I do try very hard to customize them for each property mm -hmm. because it just makes it so much more special. But yeah, there's some big chunks of boilerplate in there. <laughs> because you know what the you know what the bureaucrat wants to see, and you know what you're dealing with now. Is there? You said five acres. Is it, is it the same land size requirement of five Actually, acres? Actually, in 2014, they changed the Texas property code so that you can now have honeybees on a minimum of five acres, not running the homestead exemption. Yeah. And since they made that statement in the code, you can now have an ag exemption and then switch to a wildlife management plan on even as low as five acres. Wow. Because they've said that you can have an ag exemption on five acres with honeybees, which means you could talk them into a, uh, a, a wildlife management plan. 
but again, you have to be able to meet the intensity requirements that are that are listed in the guidelines mm -hmm. on the Texas Parks and Wildlife. The the other issue there is, you know, sometimes five acres is just not quite enough to really justify it. So look in the direction of your target species being pollinators, bees, butterflies, hummingbirds, dragonflies, songbirds, yeah. morning doves. If you got a pond, migrating ducks or mi migrating uh, birds. And stop right there. Maybe raccoons if you got a raccoon problem. <laughs> don't put deer. Don't yeah. put turkey because when you do that, you might start buying feed for turkey and deer. You might as well pay the tax. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you can get the, pretty expensive buying deer corn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I got you. Um, what, what about – you were talking about greenhouse plant sales. Now, my experience has been people in that business, people doing microgreens, et cetera, their biggest expense is soil. Right. Uh, if you can cut your expense, you increase your profit. I know you. <laughs> I know how you think. What's your approach to that? Actually, you're right. You, you want even the, the potting soil that you buy at the stores, you can improve upon that. You can use that maybe as a, a fluff base, but I set up compost piles, one big compost pile, and okay. it's, an, it's an aerated compost pile, and I have earthworm beds, so I harvest the earthworm castings. That's called worm poop, but we, we call it earthworm castings because it sounds better, and mix that in with your potting soil, compost, earthworm castings, a little bit of Epsom salts, and, you know, that's it. And that makes a really good soil. If you've got a little bit of uh, a background in compost brewing, compost tea brewing, you know, use that too in your gardens. That gives you everything you need. You don't have to go buy a truckload of dirt, potting soil. And I use that in all my greenhouse mixes uh, in my gardens. And I, I use back to earth, uh, uh, back, back, uh, back to Eden uh, gardening. So you don't use that much soil to start out with. There's no, you know, look at where you can keep it simple and, and use your homestead to bring the materials together to make a really good soil. Uh, aerated compost pile is the way to go. And I know Jack's seen a picture of mine. You simply get an, a blower, an air blower. You find them anywhere. Uh, set that up so you got power to your breaker box. And run some drain, those French drain pipes, the real cheap plastic with the slots in them. Mm -hmm. uh, get them at any hardware store. And you put those down first and hook those up to a manifold to the blower and build your compost pile on top of that. So we all know in four days, they say, turn your compost pile because all the microbes have used up the oxygen. I don't do that. No, I don't I go over and flip the switch and blow air under the compost pile for a couple yeah. minutes. And that recharges the compost pile with oxygen and the, and the microbes, they'll chew it up and I can have compost in six weeks instead of six months. Yeah. Turning compost is bad. I don't turn yeah, compost. That's right. And I mean, it's bad because it's work, but I also mean it's bad because what ends up happening is you're, you're constantly destroying the structure of fungal Mm -hmm. uh, organisms in your in your compost if you do that That's we right. take a bit of a diff different approach you're using forced air i'm using a johnson sue like thing that creates airflow um but i'm probably actually going to start air air aerating even those 
uh, going forward because it's just an easy thing. What you're doing, it was ironic because I had just met Michael Whitman from Blue Sky Biochar. And, like, I had never met you in person before. So I'm like, I looked at what you were doing. I'm like, are you Michael Whitman? <laughs> like, <laughs> like your, your compost method is identical. It really is. Um well, that's the way they've been doing it in California at the at yeah. the, at the, uh, he's from the, waste, the waste centers for years now. They, they 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 got the money. They buy the big blowers and set set it up, and it works. I don't remember where you said you got yours from, but I, as I've been looking into that, a lot of people just buy the ones that they use to like inflate a bouncy house or something like that because they're actually pretty inexpensive. You got yours somehow salvaged for like next to nothing. Yeah, let's but just there's a lot of ways to do that. <laughs> Let's just leave it as salvaged. <laughs> yeah, I, I salvaged, you know. Uh, and you flip yours on and off, but I've actually seen people set it up where, like, you know, those little $9 timers I recommend, you could set it off to go off 15 minutes at a time, four times a day if you want to. And then nine bucks, you know, automation. And automation, the way I always sell people on automation is what would you do if you didn't have to do it? Right. And the answer is, well, I do everything then. So the more you can automate, the more you can do by not yeah. having to do it. You know, now I, I mentioned I've got earthworm beds and they're just simple sandboxes. You know, I use a, a two by tens on a sheet of plywood uh, uh, with landscape timbers under it to keep it off the ground. That's the basis of my worm beds, my earthworm beds. But I've got a earthworm harvester about 16 foot long. Thank you for my wife buying that for me 20 years ago. And I will take the finished compost and run it through the earthworm harvester. And, and it's got a um, eighth inch hardware cloth and a quarter inch hardware cloth space. And it'll filter out all the fines. And now you can use that as finished compost or you can move that into the worm beds. And now you do need to add a little bit of uh, uh, composted cow manure because we're really talking about red worms or manure worms, and they really like composted cow manure. But that and compost, and I also like to have uh, leftover vegetables and fruits that I run through a garbage disposal out, outside sink okay. with power, and you run all your, your stuff through the garbage disposal and then use that as your worm food. You don't have to buy anything. And, and leave those worms in there for a while. They'll eat that. Uh, compost and all that material down. Now you've got earthworm castings, which has a high content of microbes in it. Those microbes come from the earthworm's gut when they digest uh, the food. And you run that through the harvester again. I'll take those finished earthworm castings and bag them up in 25-pound bags and take them to the farmer's market you know, I'm still selling for a dollar a pound, you know, a 25 pound bag. But when people take a bag and they try it, they're hooked. Yeah. <laughs> See, but, I like that you're using that for your starts as well, though, because this, oh, is yeah. what, this is what happens. People buy plants and if they do well, they assume that they got quality plants. They, they never consider the fact that they killed the plant. Right. Because people kill the plants all the time. But there is something to plants that are started with really healthy, biologically active root systems. Correct. Will be more adaptable, especially in our climate, which is like, we'll just like, is it El Nino or La Nino? It's the bitch climate. That's what it is. Our climate, it's tough, right? 
It's yeah. a hard climate. So anything you can give that plant to give it a resiliency. And so when that person's next year thinking, who do I get my plants from? I'm getting it from that dude in the cool hat because his plants lived and all the ones I got at the box store died. Right. There's a huge, and I don't, I, I didn't even understand how big a deal it was on how the plant was started. Cause you buy these plants that are started in these, these uh, commercial nurseries and they look beautiful when you buy them usually, not, not always, but I recently listened to a seminar with Alan Booker uh, on Paul Wheaton's site. And he was talking about how these plants will form these symbiotic relationships with soil organisms oh. right at, and just after uh, germination. Yeah. And if that plant gets to a certain size and it has yet to form those relationships. Many plants never will because it's a genetic adaptation of I shouldn't seek my energy this way because it's not going to happen because the plant assumes that where it grew, like and I say assumes we're not we're not turning plants into humans with thought, but there is an innate intelligence in all living beings. It's innate intelligence says it's never going to happen. So I need to take a different approach. So then you take this plant into this beautiful garden soil with all this biological activity and you put it in there and it either doesn't make all the connections it could, or in some cases it might not make any of them. I had no, idea. that was like from that seminar, as much as I learned in two hours, that was the most earth shattering thing in my life. Cause I've been doing this for since I was 10 years old, right? So 40 years. And I had no idea that that worked that way. You have hit the nail on the head. When plants start growing and they start putting in their, their little rootlets, that's the time when they have to make those symbiotic relationships with the microbes, the fungus, in the soil so that they will grow and continue. It's, it's a relationship you've got to have with your plant roots. So when you add some compost tea or some uh, a compost tea that's been brewed with earthworm castings and good compost, you're imparting those microbes into the soil around the plant. Plant takes off. You give your plants to somebody, you sell them at the farmer's market, and they remember how strong your plants grew, and you got a reputation. Now, it's all about those microbes in the beginning. You are correct. And I really need to see. I need to go look at that. I haven't had time to go look at that. Uh, that uh, uh, The Alan Booker seminar. It's Yeah, I need to do that because, you know, he's, he's it's nail on the head right there. Yeah, it's 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 pretty impressive. Can you talk oh, a little bit more about the advantage of aerated composting? Like we said, not turning it's an advantage because that's work. And we're back to it's not automation, but it is automation, right? Like because something else is doing the aeration. Save your what time. Would you do if you didn't have to do it, well, I turn the compost every day if I didn't have to do it. So right. effectively, you're doing that, but that actually gives us a lot of benefit as well in the finished product. Yes, yes. Now I have yet to figure out how to make finished compost that is uh, uh, weed seed, grass seed free. I mean, you really got to get it cooking to kill all the grass seeds. It's just mm -hmm. fact of life. But that that aerated compost pile, not only does that help uh, keep the oxygen charged in the compost pile for the microbes, that's what you're trying to raise, but also – that makes a really good compost with lots of microbes that you can add with earthworm castings and make a really good compost tea. And, and you can make any number of different size compost tea brewers out of a plastic bucket or a plastic barrel. As long as you remember, you have to agitate it and aerate it, add a little molasses 
and add a little bit of uh, of the um, uh, sea. Seaweed extract. Seaweed extract. Seaweed extract. Okay. Those are the elements that you need. You put that in there with a bag of earthworm casting slash compost, good good compost, you will grow out huge colonies of microbes in 24 hours. Yes. And right after that, you know, I don't dilute it. I just start pouring it on everything. You know, I don't either, and I don't understand. I guess it's just to to make more. And I guess if you're spraying a five-hectare farm or something, that, that makes sense. But, I mean, you can make up a five-gallon bucket or three of compost tea in minutes. That's right. So I just use it straight as well. I inoculate my biochar with it straight. And all I use to aerate mine is a little fish aquarium pump. Uh is the brand I use because it's what I use for all my actual fish tanks. And they come with two outputs. So two stones, five-gallon bucket, and I use a burlap sandbag. And I throw my freaking compost in that. A paint strainer bag works, whatever a rag done up like a hobo thing. And it, I, I usually run mine for two days. And I, I always do, like what you said, I always put in some of the uh, molasses. molasses, and, molasses. Seaweed. and I use liquid seaweed and kelp meal both yep. because I have it. And I usually throw in like a tablespoon of like some kind of rock mineral, like basalt or something like that as well. Yep. Why not? And right. when you pour it, on one area and don't pour it on the other. That like the whole you know scientific trials are all you have to do is do it once. All yep. you have to do is do it once, and you look at it and go, oh, I see. <laughs> they, they call that the A/B experiment. Do do one <laughs> different on the other side and just see the difference. Do you you always want to put you run two air stones off the output of the air pump. Yep. And you always want to put one or both air stones in the burlap bag and tie it off. Because what happens is the air bubbles fill up the compost and the burlap bag, and it breaks off the microbes, which are going to start making the colonies. But it also makes that burlap bag buoyant, and it floats to the top and then comes back down. And that's all you need to agitate and aerate compost. I don't. I, I hang mine so that it doesn't go all the way to the bottom. And what that... I'm, I'm going to keep doing that part anyway because the, the whole thing is when you're going to pull that bag out, I make mine in my shop, and now you have this sobby mess. So I just have another bucket, and I let it hang over that, and then that's the last of the tea before I pitch it. But I never thought of putting it in the bag, but that makes a lot of sense. The other thing I'm not big on is I've seen these people, they take an air compressor, they build, like, this apparatus out of PVC pipe, and you look at that bucket, and it looks like a boiling cauldron. It, they're just massively pumping it and i think it's too much agitation and it's it's going to end up especially the fungal hyphae that you're trying to develop it's going to distort and break those where when you just have a couple air stones running off an aquarium pump i think that's plenty of oxygen well, one thing we do, microbe can yep i actually make a uh, i use the uh the 50 gallon plastic bucket uh okay. 50 gallon barrel uh and I did the PVC pipe coming off the bottom and going around it up to the top on four sides. Okay. Use a four-way on the bottom. I put the air in, – in this case, you, you shift up to a 50-gallon aquarium pump, air okay. pump, yeah. and you run four air, little round air stones down to the bottom of each one of those PVC pipes. So now the air is coming up and pulling up the water, and when it comes out the top, you've got the entrances – uh, I'm sorry, the exit pipes at an angle, and it starts the whirlpool. 
and that works. It keeps it agitated, aerated. I always like to put one stone in the bag, though, because I like to see the bag float up and down in, in the uh, in the. Uh, combo yeah, I fruit. like that idea. I just never really thought of that. It's that's a very simple modification, and yep, it it, it makes perfect sense because that's what's going to happen. It's going to rise up and eventually it's going to discharge some of that air exactly and it's going to go back down i yeah the, the I really internet like is that. your friend jack you find all different types of compost tea setups on the internet just do some reading <laughs> yeah yeah i i do too much reading already um i do think i have found actually a way to start doing earthworms uh compost worms here and I'd like to actually know what you think about this. I, as I explained to you, where I live, the freaking fire ants, if I do anything outside, if I do anything with a Tupperware bin, anything like that, the fire ants go in and kill all the worms. Yeah. And whenever I like search, like, how do you keep ants out of worms? People are about, well, the ants don't usually cause that much trouble. and repel. No, my, I have murder ants. So mm -hmm. I found this thing. It's called uh, Worm in Mega. Yeah, and I'm waiting to hear back from the company because this website gives me a little iffy, like, is this dude actually still in business or not type thing. But the principle is it's a, a cord of nylon bag that's hung. The bottom has pull strings so you can open it, but it zips completely shut with very fine mesh. And I think this might be my solution to start doing worms because I hate not doing worms. I loved having worm farms. And I, I, I also don't like feeding worms to ants. like that, And that's what this has been here. I don't know if you've ever seen this that, thing. That's, well, I, I haven't seen that design, but many people will start their worm farms. They'll use five-gallon buckets. Yeah. And they'll, at the top uh, side of the uh, bucket, they'll, they'll poke holes in it for air. Yeah. And they will put a little worm farm right in that five-gallon bucket, and they'll have 20 or 30 of those because they yeah. can get them off the ground. Yeah. And those worms will go just fine in a five-gallon bucket. Yeah, it would be easy to suspend that, and that yeah. would be – Maybe a way because I'm telling you they're ruthless. They're freaking ruthless. They know the second you uh you you, you set up a worm farm, they know there's food, oh, there's yeah. moisture, and there's protein, yeah. and and they are a murder horde. Uh, and you want to get them off the ground for a big reason in Texas. Yeah, yeah. The armadillos. Oh. An armadillo can crawl. So so my sandbox earthworm boxes have a plywood four by eight sheet lid. Because an armadillo can crawl up over there, and he can clean out your worm bin in one night. <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. So you need to put a lid on it if you have it on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And, and real quick before we move on, we were talking about pumps. If anybody wants to know the pump I use, it's right here, uh, Aheem uh, 400. Uh, this is what you would use in like a 50 to 80-gallon tank. So it's probably similar to what you use. Wow. This is a particular model I use. And I have never had a batch of compost tea not get enough air to, to turn out well from something. I don't need to run a six-pound air compressor like I've seen some people do. That's noisy and obnoxious. Um, where, do you, what, where do you get materials for your compost? I know you mentioned some food and stuff like that, but, like, your bulk material. Are you using livestock well, bedding? Are you using trimmings? All of the above? All of the above. I have learned... If it, if you're cutting grass, if you're cutting weeds because they got too high, that that's okay because they haven't gone to seed yet. Yeah. When you start cutting lawn grass, you're with a lawnmower and a bagger, you're sucking up seeds. And yeah. if you use grass clippings, you'll get good compost if you spread it out. 
but you also get a lot of seeds and then you know that that presents another problem it's hard to cook the compost in all areas of the compost pile to the point where it kills the seeds so yeah. i've learned don't use grass clippings in the in compost pile there's plenty of other stuff like you know around me i've got cedar elm i've got oak trees uh you know anything that you're going to trim you're you you know if it's small enough you can throw that in the pile or, or stack it in a a, a uh a brush pile until it breaks down and then throw that in the compost pile, which, which is a benefit because you're adding microbes to your compost. If you, if you crawl under a, a, a brush pile that's been there for a while and, and pull some of the dirt and soil out of there, it's just loaded with microbes. But anything that drops leaves, you know, rake them up, put them in the compost pile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and with your worm composting, do you have a method that you use to harvest castings and kind of sift and, and re-pitch? Well, again, that's a, 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 a 16-foot uh, worm harvester. And, and honestly, it is designed so that it filters out two different uh, pieces of, uh, of uh, finished compost, an eighth-inch and a quarter-inch uh, mesh. Uh, Three feet on one end, three feet on the other. But the whole point here is I use it to filter out my, my compost, filter out my worm castings. It's a really nice piece of equipment. Now, you can make one, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's any number of ways to do it. But that is the easy way because the worms are sticky, and they stick to the screen and come out the end of that earthworm harvester, and you just put them back in the pile. Put them back in the earthworm pile. Uh, or you have a lot of compost when you filter it out of the uh, the uh, worm bins. It is full of baby worms and egg cocoons. Now again, this is manure worms, red worms, not earthworms. Yeah. And so if you put them anywhere, you want to make sure they got something to eat. It, it typically that's composted cow manure or something that's organic and fertile that they can chew on. Yeah. Uh, but the beauty of putting the finished earthworm castings in your potting mix and in your garden is because of the microbes that are imparted into the earthworm castings from the earthworm's gut. That That's how they chew the material and get their, get their energy out of it. And here's something I've learned a long time ago. Earthworms and manure worms, they will chew up organic material and eliminate E. coli and salmonella, which are human pathogens. When you hmm. use earthworm castings to make your compost tea, you're starting out with a material that is extremely low parts per million of E. coli or salmonella. And if you keep it agitated and aerated, you do not grow bad bugs. You grow uh, good bugs, you sure. know, the good material. So that's something to remember. That's why we like to use earthworm castings for compost tea brewing. Yeah, one of the main reasons I'm excited about trying to find a system that will let me do this again and get away from the murder ants is that. Uh, the other reason is I've, I've gotten really big into biochar. And you, what you mentioned about them taking grit in, you feed them you know, powdered biochar. They eat that. Mm -hmm. It goes through their system and they're processing that. And it's. The worm is like the thing that allows all the function stacks to function stack together and, and, and work. 
Um, I'm also kind of big on like, because I did a lot with terrariums and stuff, there's these little critters called springtails. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they'll end up in people's worm farms just because they do. And then people will worry about them and freak out. No, 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 no. I would add them if they did not show up. Right. Um, any decomposers, pill bugs, all that stuff end up in there. That's all fine. That pill bugs don't eat worms. Ants do, but pill bugs don't. You mentioned biochar. And, yeah. you know, there are many ways to make biochar. Uh, I will not give out the location, but near me <laughs> is an old charcoal factory. And whenever they would make charcoal in the eight furnaces, they would charge up every day. They clean out the fines that are in the furnaces for the next day and take it as short a distance as they can and dump it. So this old field by the uh, charcoal factory has six feet deep charcoal fines and six acres wide. And that's where I get my charcoal powder. Now, get up. <laughs> I, I am still doing the A-B testing to find out, is that really as beneficial as fresh biochar? Yeah. Because fresh biochar has microscopic tubes in it, which is where our microbes want to go. And it, yeah. will, it, will, it will hold a charge of microbiology when you, when you soak the compost tea on it. But I'll tell you what, go find you an old charcoal factory and see where they're dumping the leftovers. <laughs> gotcha. I got you. What are some of your next projects? I know you're like, you can't stop doing stuff. You're always doing something new. Um, I really do like uh, the the lasagna garden or what we call the back to Eden garden method. Uh, and that's simply where you just mow the grass. Don't till it. Don't do anything. Lay down. So, uh, it's easy to get uh, some uh, composted horse manure for the microbes. Just put out an inch. Lay down some newspaper. You get it at the recycle place. Put down some leaves. Put down some cardboard. Put down some topsoil. Put down some more composted cow manure, composted horse manure, and just keep layering it up. Newspaper, cardboard, leaves, dirt, and you can get it up about 18 inches high. And you don't need to have it backed up by a, a, a board or anything. You just tuck it in on the edges. Mm-hmm. And make yourself a garden. Now, they say you should make it in the fall and then plant in the spring. Once I've got that layered up, I, I'll take me a shovel and dig me a divot, and, and I'll put a little potting soil, earthworm castings in there, and drop my plant right in there and let it start growing. It'll grow right down through that newspaper, that cardboard, and all those layers that are that are breaking down. The beauty of that back to Eden method or lasagna method is if you use enough cardboard and newspaper, you don't have any weeds coming up. It'll kill nut grass. It'll kill Johnson grass roots and, 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 and tubers and Bermuda grass. It will not grow through 18 inches of layered compost, cardboard, leaves, dirt. Yeah. Use the lasagna method. I, I like it, but I will tell you it won't grow up through it, but Bermuda grass will grow up the side of it and into it. You have to keep an eye on it. Bermuda grass, sure. bro, it's almost as invasive as a fire ant, but it serves a purpose at least. I can't think of a purpose for a fire ant. Bermuda grass feeds my ducks and geese. They're very happy to eat it, so it, it can go. be around. But uh, fire ants are – I even thought one time, dude, I was like, I have all these fish, and I'm like, I could just go to a fire ant nest, and I could just take a shovel and piss them off and then stick the shovel in there and then stick the shovel in the pond, and then the fish will eat the fire ants. 
fortunately, before I did it, we looked it up, and it turns out you'll kill your fish because the well, acid well, level in the fire ant is actually toxic to the fish. They will eat them, but it will kill they them. They make natural formic acid. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's well, how they, they make the fur. They bite you, sting you, and then they pee formic acid into the wound. Right. They are they are the devil. Um, you also mentioned something though in your notes about you're going to be playing around with Johnson Sioux. Even yeah, I, I've done there. I've done the research. I'm sold by what I see. And uh, I've got all the equipment. All I need is the time. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you the secret. Any of your county recycle plants, they got huge mounds of wood chips that they've mixed with leaves. Our local county, they, uh, they they'll bring everybody brings their uh, their uh, branches, tree branches, and their leaves. Mm-hmm. They don't allow lumber. Each year, the county will go get one of these semi-trailer mulchers. Yeah. And they will throw everything through there twice and stack it up 30, 40 feet high, and yeah. it's free for the taking. And that is the same thing that you would use to build Johnson Sioux bioreactors with. Yeah. All it takes is time. Yeah, I've got about <laughs> 35, 40 yards of chips in my field, and I use a combination of that and straw yep. and do a Johnson Sioux-ish thing. And what I can tell you is the compost that I get from it, and I've looked at Johnson Sioux and what they're doing, it's like halfway, what I'm making is halfway between plain compost and their compost. Mm-hmm. Theirs is very clay-like. Yep. Mine's very clay-like, but not quite as clay-like. And, like, you can drop a ball of it on the ground and it stays together, but when you pick it up and you pinch it, it breaks apart. It is the coolest freaking compost I've ever made. How and do you use it? It's super easy. I don't use their big giant cages with all welded together and they're climbing up a ladder and dumping it in. I take a piece of four-foot fence four foot high fence mm-hmm. and i make a ring about five foot in diameter and when it's full i build another one I how mean, do you use your finished compost from the um, i spread it or i make tea okay i do both with it i do both with it and they they make theirs and they claim you can spread like a ton on an acre and get a biological boost that's in that is i mean a ton is less than a truckload yeah across a football field you wouldn't even be able to see it so i'm really interested i'm kind of into my second year with it now to see what it does to the garden this year um but it is a it is a a texture a a friend of mine that's part of this whole industry um who's actually been down to south america and has actually looked at terra preta soils Mm -hmm. it it looked felt and smelled like actual terra preta soils even without the charcoal in it yet right so i am i'm really excited about where that's going and i I also just like the idea. I don't like to turn compost. Turning compost sucks, and you end up with a lower yield when you do that. Johnson Zoo is vertical, too. That takes yeah. good use of the, your square foot area. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So also, what did I have here for your new stuff? Um, microgreens. You're going to play with microgreens. Oh, my like goodness. I mean, you could spend night after night studying how to build microgreen projects uh, I've got all the equipment. I've got a big greenhouse and uh, I was just going to, I was even trying to do it this winter, set it up in the greenhouse so that I'm going to the greenhouse every day anyway. And then I just go and, and, and water the, uh, greens as needed. But that's another good startup. I mean, it's so easy. The startup cost is so low, but everybody loves microgreens on their, on their salads, on their sandwiches. I mean, you know, a piece of meat and a piece of cheese and a whole wad of 
broccoli sprouts, just as crunchy as can be. When people get used to eating microgreens, they keep looking for it every day. Where is it? Where is it? Yeah. You can make a good living or a side hustle by selling microgreens. You start out at the farmer's market on Saturday, but when people find out you've got microgreens, they're going to seek you out. They're going to want more. You know, I've seen two ways that this has really worked for people with the microgreen thing. One is people like John Dowie at Dowie Farms. He sells, you know, 90% of his material he's selling into very high-end expensive restaurants. Mm-hmm. And he's gotten very good. He has a, a, a grow room he leases. Everything's indoors. He's got 28 different things that he sells. Some of it's really expensive. I mean, it almost sounds like you're selling dope. He's, like, selling it by the gram or whatever. Um and so that's worked. But I've also seen a lot of people do what you're talking about, more like consumer retail level. Right. And the people I've seen that work the best for, they're doing something else. Right. So they're selling backyard eggs. And now you have an add-on product. And it's a lay – we used to call it in sales a lay-down sale. We're like, when you say, hey, this clamshell's 10 bucks, it's like, I'll, yeah, I'll take that. Like, it's just exactly. not even like – you know, somebody that just drove – and some of our customers for eggs, they'll drive 18, 20, 30 miles – to buy four dozen eggs for 12 bucks a dozen. Right. Selling that person $10 worth of salad greens or whatever, that, that person's not making a decision on money or they wouldn't be doing what they're doing to come do business with you at that price point. And, and I say, just dive in, you know, start small and you can, you can build the business as you get more clientele. Jack, somebody told me a long time ago that there's a change in our society uh, and I've seen it uh, at the farmers markets and at, at the plant venues around uh, around Texas. Uh, you know, the COVID is over the last few years has really changed people's lifestyle. They're in and out of jobs. They've got more time on the internet to do research, and they start to see stuff on the internet. They're trying to find side hustles to cover their food bill, to cover their budget. They see something, I say, well, I can make that with my hands. I can use my mind and my hands, and I can make that. I can sell that. And they start making something that they like or plants, anything. And they take it to the farmer's market on Saturday. And after a few trips to the farmer's market, they start to realize, if I add a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit to this, mm-hmm. I can make thousands of dollars more than I was making when I was working for the man. And that's when the light bulb flips and they start their own little businesses. And those businesses real quickly turn into a lot of money. And I see that every day. That is the real change that I'm seeing at the, at the, at the rural level in the farmer's markets. The farmer's markets are having a renaissance right now. Well, uh, and it, it fits with what I've always taught with entrepreneurship. Do not sell what people need, sell what they want. Exactly. When you sell what they need, you compete with the big businesses, and you can't win. And, and so I will tell you one more. You go to a farmer's market every Saturday. You're going to pass one by. Stop and see what people are needing, what they're buying. Yeah. And when you start setting up your own table and selling your goods, you go around and support everybody else at that farmer's market. Uh, I don't know how many times – I. I'll have six packs of plants to, for sale on the side, yeah. along with the honey. Yeah. But I'm going to go buy a six pack of plants from somebody else if I see it, and I'll give them the five dollars because yeah. number one, I want to support them, and number two, 
you know, I'm like everybody else. They, they've got a six pack of vegetable plants that I don't have. Yeah. You know, I don't have time to buy the seed and put it in there. I'm just going to buy it from them and plant it in my garden. Instant gratification. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and diversity. Right. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about when you establish honeybee air, apiaries for new okay. beekeepers. Right. How do you see landowners grow those businesses? Because I think a lot of people are coming to you straight out of the gate with, I want the ag exemption, which makes, it makes so much financial sense. You're dumb sure. not to do it if you can. But well, like you said, they get involved and now they realize like these little boxes that these angry stinging bugs live in actually have a, a, a significant financial output. Well, the first thing I'll tell you is, Bees are most of the time not aggressive. They don't try to sting you, okay? Bees, there's no reason why you should raise hot bees or mean bees. If they get too hot, you just go in there, you squish the queen, you put a new queen in a cage, she comes out, she starts laying eggs, and 45 or 60 days later, you have a gentle hive. Yep. Because the genetics that is in the egg of the queen is what controls the behavior of the bees. So nobody, no beekeeper should raise hot bees. It just sucks the fun out of them. I teach people that. Now, and I can only tell you what I've done, but people want that ag exemption. You say, fine, I'll sell you the bees. I'll sell you the equipment. I put the equipment together in my workshop. I'll set it up for you. I'll mentor you, and I'll maintain your bees for a nominal fee every month. And what happens is they get excited about beekeeping, most of them, and then they start to want more bee. They want what I have. Well, I want more beehives. And maybe they want honey. They want to sell honey to farmer's market. And once they get the bug, I also give them uh, YouTube sites to go to to learn like I've learned. Teach them what I'm doing. Hey, if you have a good rapport with people, well, then teach them beekeeping. Because once they get excited... They're going to want more, more bees, more equipment, and how you do it. And I share exactly how I do it with them so they can do it. The demand for beekeeping is off the charts. But we don't have enough beekeepers that are out there helping people learn beekeeping. You, know, you just connect the dots. Now, yeah. I make up five. I'm a small fry. I'll make up 500 nukes. By between March and April uh, that I've, I've got pre-sales for. People have already waiting for them for their ag exemptions. As long as you get all your bees out on the property before April 30th of every year, that fulfills the requirement of the county appraisal office. It's okay. that's, that's kind of important. Can you talk quick about, I don't think they were your hives. It was a guy that was there kind of sort of with you, younger dude. And he was making these hives, and they looked like a top bar hive to me until I pulled them open. We had some people asking about top bar before uh, before this started, and I said that what y'all were doing made a hell of a lot more sense to me. Can you kind of because well, I did top bar for a while when I was a bee caper, and I, I honestly hated it. Sure, you know, and like basically, my mentor said like top bar is better for the bees, and Langstroth is better for the beekeeper. And this was kind of like the two coming together, and they looked really cool as well. Well, that was James. I taught him how to do some beekeeping last year, and he is a young go-getter. He now has a, a website where he sells those 
mostly in the Austin, Texas area, and they are selling like hotcakes. It's called the Hive Mine-ATX, Austin, Texas. The Hive Mine.ATX. He's got a nice website. It's just a long Langstroth hive on legs. And a lot of benefits there is it uses the same frames that you use in a regular box, but it's lifted up on legs so you don't have to bend over. And it'll hold 30 frames. There it is. It'll hold 30 frames. Now, the way he's got it set up, you could actually put two partitions in there and have three colonies. Yeah. Because if you notice, there's three entrances. Yeah. The this and it's a it's a cedar box with mahogany legs, and they're just selling like hotcakes in Austin. I mean, you know, go figure. That's what Austin want. They put them in their backyards. Austin really doesn't have any HOA requirements or restrictions, and so, well, I got him started. I told him, look, I'll I'll give you all the bees you need at a discount price, and I think he sold fifty of these things in. Two months. And See, that's still- an example of, of, of somebody you helped that then took it and did something with it. And what I like about it and what yeah. I hated it about top bars, two things. One, you don't get a lot of comb coming off the, the frame attaching to the side. So right. you're not sitting there with a freaking hive knife for half an hour to pull one freaking bar out. But the other thing is, if you have a top bar and you're taking and you're inspecting comb, for those who can see me on the video, not on the audio... You kind of have to do this kind of thing like this with it to inspect it. And if you do this, the comb breaks off and you have a broken comb and a lot of pissed off bees. If you turn the frame sideways, yeah, and, and it's a triangular shaped frame, yeah. you turn it sideways and the comb's going to fall on the ground. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of tricky. Yeah. Uh, this is this, this, what we call a long Langstroth. Mr. Langstroth's the one that invented the beehives. This long Langstroth. It is the best of all worlds. Now, now most people like the traditional beehives, but that beehive is selling like hotcakes, and, and there's a lot of benefits to it. N- number one, the 30 frames. You can actually start with five-frame nuke, which is a nucleus. Yeah, he's got some music, too. Yeah, I, I, I got rid of it. Uh, a five-frame <laughs> is the nucleus of a beehive. All right. You start out with five frames of bees and a working queen. You put that in the middle. You add blank frames on either side. And if you do the nuke right, like I do, the bees explode and they yeah. fill up that 10 frame box just overnight within two or three weeks. Now, I really like building in that architecture better than kind of a stacked architecture. Right? I don't know if like is the right word for it, but I think that it's it's more natural, I guess, yeah. you know, for them. I, I just like that that kid, I use the term loosely because I'm old now, but that kid hits the ground running as soon as you point an opportunity out to him. And what I would point out to people watching this today is like, okay, that dude sells mostly in Austin. Can you imagine shipping that thing like across the country? It's probably not going to happen or it's going to be cost prohibitive. It's in the end, it's, 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 it, there's certain things about it that need to be a certain way, but it's a box. If you yeah. have basic wood shop experience, you can build a box those, like you're saying, those things are selling like crazy. So like 50 this year, they're 800 bucks a piece. Without the bees. Without the bees, right? <laughs> He's probably, I'm going to go on materials, probably somewhere like 150 bucks if it's all new material in one, maybe a little bit more. 
Um, that's a decent profit margin. And since you're building this, anything that you can build that's the same every time, you build jigs and things, and your fabrication speed goes, like, it just, it's so much quicker to build every box the same than to build a different thing each time you build it. Like, if you're a cabinet maker, you're going into somebody's house. You're taking measurements. The reason you're doing it is they don't want to buy off-the-shelf cabinets. Right. Right. So you're tailor-making every cabinet is a new layout, a new thing. You're making this thing. You set all your jigs up. Boom. You can mass produce even at a small scale. And that's something that somebody could easily start as a side hustle. Jack, let me let me take it to the next level. I saw James start his own business. And he had a good product. I, I knew he was going to start selling these like hotcakes in Austin, Texas. Yeah. So I went to James and I said, James, you worry about the bee equipment. I'll take care of your bee supply. Okay. And, and I, I gave, I promised him 200 nukes at a discount price because yeah. I didn't want him to work. I wanted him to succeed. Yeah. And this is what you need to do with people around you. When you see somebody takes off, and they've got a good idea, and they, they got a nice side hustle, and you can help them, well, go collaborate with them. Because even though I'm giving him a deep discount on these nukes for the, the bees that he's going to put in his boxes that he's delivering to his clients, I'm still going to make a profit. You need yeah. to collaborate and lift up all stakeholders in the room. That's my model. Well, and you're not trying to do everything, right? Because, like, if you're trying to build all the hives, then you're not putting as much energy into making your nukes. If he's trying to make nukes, he's not putting the energy into making the hives. Right. And I think there is a case for some, I hate specialization, but I love specialization. Right. So I, I believe in specialized and standardized, like on my homestead, like all my right. pipe is half inch or one inch, unless there's a reason. So some of my mm -hmm. return lines are two inch because no one ever said, gee, I wish my return lines were smaller. Right. But everything else is standard. So you specialize in th some things and you standardize on others. And so everybody can grow plants, but maybe not everybody's going to grow bees or bees in the quantity necessary to be able to sell nukes. And yep. I'll bet you there are beekeepers who sell nukes every year within 50 miles or less, probably for everybody listening today. That's right. That if you went to them with that hive that you could find a partnership. And, and two or three of them might tell you to go screw. That doesn't matter. That just means you need to ask four or five. And I know that yep. it was going so well for you at John's thing that every time I walked up to you, you're going, I don't know if we can do what you're just getting too many people asking. And you get to a point where you get to a point where you start having to say no to business. You you you've you've done something. Well what I like to do, if somebody's too far away from me and I can't help them directly, I tell them, go find your local beekeepers association, the next closest one to your house, and go visit them. Because those beekeeping clubs or associations where people come together to learn from each other about beekeeping. So I, I just tell them, just look on the Internet and find the, the – now, in Texas – You've got the Texas Beekeepers Association, and they actually have a directory on their website that tells you all the different affiliated local clubs. And 
just go to one and you'll meet people. You'll learn new beekeeping ideas. You'll have people that will help you get started. And I'm, I'm going to tell you two things. One, the demand for bees is incredible right now for many reasons. Everybody wants at least one beehive on their property to pollinate all their plants. It, that beehive doesn't have to be in the middle of the garden. No. It can be over in the corner of the property. The bees will find the plants. Sure. That's what and, they do. And, and number two, we are changing the face of Central Texas by putting so many more beehives all around. Some of them are going to swarm. They're going to go into the fields. Yeah. Jack, I also raise queens. I raise Cordovans. I've worked with several beekeepers that raise queens here in Central Texas. Those are gentle queens. And when they go out, we're changing oh. the population in the oh, wood yeah. because we're introducing an improved uh, queen bee to mm. the forest. No, that makes sense because all the bees that live wild around here are dicks. I mean, I, I was <laughs> that was another reason I – no, really, that's the reason I got – Another reason I didn't like working with my bees is you know, you can squish queens, but I was squishing queens constantly. Yeah. I mean, these bees around here, they're just – and I, I had neighbors like going – like three years after I got rid of my bees going, man, your bees are in my backyard every day. Dude, I don't, I don't have – I haven't had bees for three years. How do you years. know they're my bees? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, like the Jack Spiergo brand. Now, that would be a unique – that would be a unique little gimmick product, a bee brand. A little tiny branding iron for bees so you could brand all the bees. But the the bad thing is, you know, there'd be some idiot on TikTok trying to use it. Yep. That would be the bad thing. Um, let's talk about the real revolution, right? That was the word you used on your, your application here. Yeah. I do see all of this as part of the backyard revolution. All of this is, in a large amount, decentralized. Decentralized by its very nature is things that are very hard to centralize. So it is hard to centralize beekeeping or bee supplies, right? Or beehives. It is hard to centralize biochar. It is hard to centralize compost, especially and get quality. Like yep. because most mass-produced compost, it's absolute dog crap. In fact, dog crap would be better. Right. And, and you know, you people like Paul Wheaton, like it's it's all got herbicides in it. I think it's less herbicides. It's more the the way that it is produced. It creates uh, acetobacterium. Because it's too much, it's too big, it's too yep. hot, it has all these pockets, and you get this stuff, and a lot of times it will have like this white in it that looks like it's fungus, and you think it's really great, and it's this particular form of bacteria, and it then it, it basically inhibits fungal growth, which you can smell it want because you want the fungal activity. So I think there's like, that's hard to centralize. Like this to me is all incredibly decentralized. Anybody can start some piece of it anywhere. It all builds like these nodes of community around it. And the more the more you build out that node of community, the stronger it gets. And then you start connecting those nodes. And this whole parallel economy actually starts to look like, well, a parallel economy instead of like one. And I don't mean anything bad by this. But, like one person selling salve is not going to get this done, especially when everybody goes, oh, it's salve's easy to make. So everybody does it. Right. And everybody's selling the same thing. Like you have to get into this diverse array of things like the bee thing i don't have anything against bees i just don't want to take care of them you sure. know what that is that's opportunity that's right right that's opportunity so how do you see this all playing into this idea of this kind of modern insurrection well we're we're not reinventing i mean 
we've already done this 150 years ago. I mean, yeah. in the 1830s, people moved into Texas. They developed farm communities, three or four families in one area. They started taking roads and trails to the county seat. Those are still here today as farm-to-market roads. That's where you go from the farm to the county seat, where you have the gathering on Saturday, the farmer's market at the county square or at the courthouse. They've been doing this for 150 years, Jack. We're just picking it up again. Yeah. And, and that's how you get community. People will meet in their farm community in what they call now a freedom cell, or they'll go to the county seat on Saturdays or Tuesdays. Tuesdays are becoming a big one now. The reason is because farmers, they got food on Monday and they got food on Friday and they can't wait till Saturday the next week to sell the food. So we start out in the summer on Tuesdays and Saturdays. Okay. You're building community and you're finding people with like minded ideas. And now you can collaborate with each other and build the community faster. You know, I heard somebody say that 15 years ago on a podcast, yeah. and I'm seeing it today, every yeah. week. You know, it, it, it's actually to watch this all come together. Because, yeah, like you mentioned, I've been doing this a decade and a half, and a lot of what I talked about in the beginning is actually beginning to happen. It was already happening, but it's a lot more broad scale, a lot more integrated, a lot more connections being developed. People are moving out of the urban areas for any number of reasons, they've figured out that they can have a better quality of life in a more rural setting and they can control their food security. I think food security is one of the biggest uh, uh, page turners that we've got in our society today. Uh, If you have a little piece of land, I mean, it could be a backyard in an urban area. It doesn't matter, but you Take your time and grow some food, grow some vegetables, grow some medicinals, and you can reduce your food budget and eat good. And some people take it to the next level and start selling vegetables at the farmer's market on Saturday. You, you form community, you eat healthier, you make a little money, and that's the change we're seeing in our society. People are getting out of that area where they rely on other people for their livelihood, their lifestyle, and their food. You got to take a few steps. Take the first step and start figuring out what you can do for yourself. You're right on the space thing, too, because I think even if you do get out and get five acres, ten acres, a hundred acres, I don't care what it is, the primary food production that you do for your own household should probably look a lot like the guy that's on a half acre in a residential area, same space. Because that space is so productive when managed right so you can you i mean i got three acres i use the hell out of the the land itself but my garden my primary gardens would fit in a half acre backyard no problem your greenhouse was what 13 by 20 you met 260 square foot yeah right the production you can do in that area especially with the intensive management you and i are discussing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right it's it's in permaculture we'd say zone one design like no matter how much you do with your zone two and three, you really want to lock down your zone one design as quickly as possible. Right. Now, Jack, a lot of people, they they, they have hard pan clay. Yeah. And they first start putting in the gardens, 
you know, you can use the lasagna method to soften up the soil over a couple of years and, yeah. and then you don't have to dig it up. But I recommend using those 25-gallon molasses buckets and those protein buckets. Yeah. You can find them anywhere. And you can put a pretty darn big garden in, in a little two-and-a-half-foot molasses bucket. And there's plenty of ways they show you on the Internet to do that. Uh, well, or podcasts. But yeah. I'll yeah. tell you, the 25-gallon the, the molasses bucket set up uh, with a little bit of drainage in the bottom – and I put my five inch hole at the bottom so it doesn't fill any water over that point. You can grow a garden in a molasses bucket real quick. Instant gratification. Put some seeds in the dirt and get them started. You, yeah. You've actually got, I think, uh, uh, you have talked about that, I think, in a few podcasts that there, there's several examples of that on the, um, on the internet. What do we call gardening, wicking no. beds, all wicking bed, wicking yeah. beds. They're they're made with with twenty five gallon molasses buckets. Or you know, like you help you help John Bush down there put his in. He took IBCs, cut them in half, and made two out of each one. That's basically yeah. a four. It's not quite four feet, but it's pretty much a four by four raised bed. Flip instant. Yep. You know. Again. A lot of people have hard pan clay. They can't get that garden in the first year. Yeah. Well, don't let that stop you. Do something. Put, put a container in there. Uh, you know, find something, make your soil, get something growing. What are your thoughts on events like where we met each other, Greater Reset? Uh, John's doing, and I'm going to be there. I think you're going to be there, too, uh, in April, May, May. Exit and build. I actually well, prefer I'm that speaking. one. It's a little right bit more in, my, in my wheelhouse, but I mean, <laughs> we, we we got to finally meet each other uh, in person in real life. I think these events, uh, Self Reliance Festival in Tennessee, all of these, these are ways to take what we're talking about with this backyard revolution and allow those nodes to connect, right? To actually create that network effect. So you remember what I said at the last event that we just went to? I got up there when everybody started eating lunch, and I, I yelled out, get out of your comfort zone. When you get your lunch plate, which was a very nice dinner, go back and sit at somebody else's table. Don't go back to your comfort table, at least for lunch. Go sit with somebody you don't know. Introduce yourself and then say, what's your claim to fame? What are your skill sets? And start up a conversation. You may find that y'all have got something common that you can collaborate with. And at that point, make sure you've got your connections. And, and I'm telling you, you can carry business cards. That's easier. But, you know, they've got something out there called a dot card. Look it up on the Internet. It's D-O-T. You take that card, you touch somebody's phone, and they, your contact is dropped into their phone. Get your connections and then contact each other by ever any means possible and start building your relationship. That is what you do. That's the real uh, benefit or gain that you're going to get when you go to these five-day events. Yeah. You yeah well, I've always done connections. people I, I want to have a connection with. I will just say, hey, here, text me real quick. I'll give them my phone number. Yeah. And say, right. And when they do that, I'll make a, you make a contact. And I'll take a picture of them with their contacts so I remember who they are. The other yeah. side of that is if, if your contact in my phone doesn't have a picture, you have no chance of me answering the phone when you call. Right. Yeah. I might return. That's one of my screening mechanisms, right? 
I might return your call if you leave me a voicemail. But if the phone's over there and I see it ringing and I look at the screen and there's no there's no image, you are not a real boy. Because <laughs> lots of people get my phone number one way or another. So that's that's like you're not in my phone. You don't get answered. But it's really actually a great way to do things. We have a guy that comes to our events here named Harry. He actually reminds me a lot of you in a lot of ways. He's got that same teacher's heart and all. And he does a thing every year with all the students where people write down a thing of who they are, where they're from, the things they're looking to learn about and the things that they can teach. And they do a pit level like a uh, what's it, a mugshot. And then right. we make this list and we distribute it to all the students that wanted to be on it every year. Um, it is the value. I say this all the time. When you go to these events, you got to talk to people. And a lot of times yeah. they come to these events, yeah. you want to meet a speaker or whatever. That's great. And I try to talk to everybody that I can. But if you go to an event with 200 people, you're not going to talk to everybody because you can't. You know, or you're not going to have a long, meaningful, in-depth conversation with everybody. But so that's your goal, Jack. That is your goal when you go to those events. Yeah. Get out and talk to as many people as you can and share with them your skill set because the, the whole idea is that's how we build community. Uh, the, the freedom cells are a good example. When people share their skill sets, then they have – workshops where they teach each other these, these skill sets. And those are also meetups where they can come and learn about each other. A lot of times we'll have workshops like building a garden over one person's land where they need a garden. Everybody yeah. participates and everybody learns permaculture. You know, you can do I do that with beekeeping. I tell people we're going to put the bees in next weekend. Invite all the people you want to come learn about bees. And I usually have a, a few extra jackets for the kids. Yeah. It makes the teacher better, too, because you will get the question from somebody in the group that the one person thought of five minutes after you left. Right, right. When you have that group, it's a better dynamic as an instructor. I, I like groups of, like, 20, 10 to 20. I can talk to everybody. I can hear everybody. Everybody can hear me. I don't have to scream like those backyard things. That that's kind of like a perfect number. Nicole Sauce sure. does that up in Tennessee. Yeah. They call it get shit done cruise. You know, one person like I need to do this. Everybody that wants to learn and whatever, and you throw some food on, maybe have a cooler full of beer or whatever. You know, I I, I think about like when you were talking about this the revolution in the backyard. What I was thinking of is how our entire American Revolution was planned in pubs and ale houses and cider right. houses, right? And like with all these bees, we need to start having like these uh, this this meadery insurrection in the backyard. Like mead is one of the greatest elixirs man has ever come up with. And right. like we maybe we need to be planning our sedition uh, through backyard decentralization over a few pints of mead here and there. Uh, because there's just like it's another thing that you can do with the, the bounty that comes from this. And I think there's a tremendous there's a tremendous underswell of this right now. And I think society's kind of bifurcating into people that want to be provided for and people who want to provide. And uh, the problem really with like to be provided for is the people that want to provide, they will first provide for themselves mm -hmm. and then sell you the surplus. You have to do something meaningful. Right. That's called <laughs> skill sets. You mentioned colonial times. And, and I love that movie, Patriot. But in the beginning... The gentleman was looking at an English rocking chair. 
and he couldn't figure out how somebody could make such a nicely fine developed work work workshop developed rocking chair that held up. Yeah. The guy in the colonial times that could make the English rocking chair, which everybody needs if they got babies, they need to rock them. People would beat a path to his door to get his rocking chair. And that's how the colonial uh, time started. Everybody had something they could sell, something they could make, some sort of consulting that they could service people with. And that's how our country built. And that's where we need to go back to where you have a skill set. You have a skill set that you can share with somebody else. Yeah. And you can, obviously you can make some money off of it, but you can share that skill set. So they have the skill set and everybody starts to do their own thing in the community. And we've changed the economy and the life of central Texas. I want everybody to move into Central Texas and buy land because <laughs> I know they can learn yeah. how to be self-sufficient. It's just something they, they they naturally adhere towards. Yeah, Let's I will say the area the area you're talking about around Bastrop down there. Yeah. it is a really cool place. Oh yeah, it's oh, a yeah. cool place. You're you're just close enough to sell the hippies, but just far enough away you don't have to really deal with them. Sure, <laughs> and those events that they have. You know, I'm obviously close to Bastrop, so I like the five-day events that John Bush has. Yeah. But And he's doing twice a year. But yeah. those events are just so valuable for people on a five days. I mean, you come as many days as you want, but you learn so much because you collaborate with people there and lift each other up. It, it only works when you collaborate and lift each other up. That's no. my philosophy I've always had. Collaborate and lift up all stakeholders in the room. It worked with Dresser. It worked with GE Oil and Gas, and it works now. <laughs> you know, when I talked to you down there uh, at Greater Reset, I said, why the hell aren't you speaking? Will you be speaking at Exit and Build? Yes, I will. Okay, I, I, I you were, were going to, whether you wanted to or not. It was well, I, had to talk, I had to get up there on stage enough so John Bush says, yeah, we need him up there. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, yeah, John, John finally, he asked me to come up there. I, I was getting those five-minute uh, speeches in, and yeah. and, uh, and I got a 15-minute one last time, and then, and then he says, okay, Bruce is going to have to speak next time. And he looks around and says, and I set it on stage so I can't take it back. <laughs> Well, I'm looking and, forward to it. And we will definitely uh, both be there. Y'all should come. I don't remember the dates off the top of my head. I, May 20th in or thereabout is uh, when I think it's going to be something like that. I don't remember. John's not full on promoting it yet. He needs to be. Yeah. Uh, but more will be coming on that. So if you want to meet me and Bruce uh, and a bunch of other really cool people, including Nicole Sauce, will be there. Get mm -hmm. your get your butt down to uh, exit and build and check out a really cool part of the country too, Bruce. Yeah. I've had a great discussion with you. I knew I would. You want to tell folks how they can learn more about you? Um, well, uh, come to Bastrop. Um, <laughs> you know, I've got a nice little girl that I met at the last exit and build that uh, is upgrading my media. Uh, Ross Creek Organic Farm dot com. Ross Creek Organic Farm at Facebook dot com. Ross Creek Honeybees uh, at gmail.com. <laughs> you can email you. Just type in Ross Creek Honeybees or Ross Creek Organic Farm and I'm going to come up. Yeah, and if you, if you go 
I had somebody asking yesterday too about uh, some links from the show. Right, if you're watching the video instead of listening to the audio, right down there below the video in the video notes, there's a link. That link goes over to the survivalpodcast.com and it goes to the audio podcast for this episode. That's where all the stuff is. So I've got Bruce's Instagram, his Facebook, and his website uh, all in the show notes for you. Uh, so just go look up episode 3259 if you're listening to the audio and you want to find this stuff. If you are on the video, you can just click that link below the video. There's lots of other cool links down there. But if you click that link right now, this moment, while we're watching it live, guess what? It won't work because we're not there yet. It'll be about an hour, an hour from right now, this moment, if you're watching the live and any time thereafter, it'll be available. Bruce, thank you for being with us today. Enjoyed it. All right, folks. Well, real quick, let me wrap up with you before we move on. Uh, I want to remind you guys, one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is just by doing your online shopping, you know where. Start out at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go there, you help us out no matter what you buy. You'll also find all the items that I have reviewed. And, uh, you know, if you see it there and I reviewed it, that you can buy it and trust it. Because if I wouldn't buy it again, I would recommend you spend your money on it. These are just really cool today. Uh, this is one of those ones that I don't really care about the brand. The brand that makes these particular ones I'm linking to is called Zazzy. It doesn't matter. They're probably all made in the same place, but they work really great. If you're looking at it and wondering what the heck is that, they are rope hangers for grow lights. There's some other things you can do with them. People said they use them for, like, holding their uh, their water feeders and adjusting the height of their water feeders for chicks and stuff like that. But for me, they're just the perfect way to adjust your grow lights when you're doing indoor starts. So that you keep bringing those lights up. They work perfectly. They're inexpensive. Uh, you get 12 of them for $16.99. So they're a buck fifty a piece. And I even have a video in the write-up that explains how they work and shows them in my system and how they function. But remember, no matter what you buy, you can always help us out just by starting your online shopping at tspaz.com. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I hope you guys enjoyed Bruce. I knew you would. Uh, like I said, when I when I had conversations down there with him, I was like, we got to get this guy one on stage and we two, we got to get him on the show. So we'll probably hear from him again. I, I bet we'll have him on because he's got a lot of stuff he's working on. It's always good to talk to somebody like this. And uh, tomorrow is Thursday. Thursday is going to be about Thursday show. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to talk about yet. I haven't decided. And remember, Friday this week, we are skipping expert counsel. You pikers on the expert councils. Uh, I need I need more material, so I'm giving you guys a week to build up some backlog for me. And on that note, I am always looking to expand the expert council. So if you think you'd be a good fit, uh, shoot me an email, TSPC expert in the subject line. Give me your pitch. Do that in about a paragraph or less, so because I'm not going to read it if it's 16 pages. And uh, I may send then back to you a request for an audition recording, and we'll see about expanding the expert council that way. Anyway, with that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I will be back with you tomorrow. You guys have a great day. I've been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. 
matter where 